Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com. A broadband network Christ is risen. for you to learn Indeed, more is risen. about the Eastern Welcome Catholic Church. of the East. That's I am your host, Eastern Father Christian Thomas J. Loya. In the Byzantine liturgical tradition, Light of the this East Sunday is one of the Sundays in a the grant Paschal from the Koch Foundation. It is the Sunday we call the Sunday of the Samaritan Woman. It's the account in John's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus has this very interesting encounter with this woman who comes to the well to draw water. Now, as always in John's Gospel, and in the liturgy of the church, there are multi-levels of lessons that are going on here. And certainly one of those has to do with water, the idea of thirst, of water, which is a foreshadowing, a hint at of the waters of baptism, because we're all about new life now in this season of our Lord's resurrection. And in the Eastern calendar, the liturgical calendar of the Eastern churches, many of the Eastern churches are focusing on these encounters between Christ and women, and also where there is the element of water and of thirst, of the change of people's lives. And another reason why this is significant is because the whole of the Paschal mystery actually provides the context of the whole order of man-woman relationships, actually, the why behind man and woman, and especially of marriage. Let's go back a little bit to some of the references from the liturgy about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Holy and Great Friday, the body of Jesus Christ is taken down from the cross, and we have a beautiful, moving Vesper service in the Byzantine Church that commemorates that. We literally take a shroud with the image of Christ on it. The priest takes that shroud on his shoulders and his back as though he were Joseph taking the body of Christ down from the cross. And we ceremoniously lay it into a structure that represents the tomb. And then the liturgical text talk about the tomb. They talk about some of the details. And they hearken back first to Christ's birth. And some of the details that are made, not only on Holy Friday, but then later on on Resurrection Sunday on the Pascha, Focus on things like the tomb, the seals, the seals to the tomb, and also the wrappings, and eventually the encounter of Jesus with women. In the liturgical text, the reference is made, first of all, to Christ's nativity and how he was conceived and born through a virgin. 
the mother of God remains a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. That's why she has three stars on her icon. Have you ever seen icons of the Virgin Mary with Christ? Sometimes Christ covers the one star, but basically she's wearing three stars, which stand for the symbolism of she remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Now, the word is used oftentimes in the liturgical text and also in the scripture as seal. The seal of her virginity remained intact. Now we move from there to the tomb. And we refer to the tomb as an empty tomb, but one that was new. It says that Joseph of Arimathea Nicodemus put Christ's body into a new tomb, and that tomb was sealed. Now that's very significant, because on Easter, on the Pascha, we're going to sing about how the tomb was sealed, yet Christ arose. So just as he came forth from an earthly woman, an earthly mother, the Virgin Mary. He comes forth from her in birth in a miraculous way because he emerged from her somehow. He was somehow born, but she remained a virgin before, during, and after that birth. So too is he put in a virginal tomb, and the tomb remains virginal as he rises from it. In other words, he emerges from that tomb somehow while keeping it intact. Another one of the proofs of the resurrection, as we say in our liturgical text, we ask the question, if you're not going to be in the resurrection, then how do you explain the fact that Christ rises from the tomb, although it was sealed? And where is the body then? Who could have stolen it? It's not possible. So now we have this connection with the virginity of something virginal, both at his birth, at his death, and burial, and resurrection. And then it mentions in the liturgical text, it makes a lot of mention about the burial wrappings, and it's very specific, as is John's gospel. It says how the wrappings were laid there rather neatly. They did not go with the resurrected body of Christ. And John makes the point that the wrapping of around the head of Jesus was folded up and put to the side. It was not with the wrapping of the body. Now, in the Jewish custom, when someone was invited to a meal, when they used their napkin, at the end of the meal, when they folded it up, they laid it to the side, and it was a symbol they would be returning again. So Christ was already laying a hint. Remember, he told the apostles through the women at the tomb to go meet him again in Galilee. Remember, he promised they would meet again in Galilee. Galilee represented what was, well, the good times before it all went seemingly so wrong and Christ was put on the cross, seemingly defeated. Now he rises up and he wants to meet them where? Not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee, where the good times were. And the wrappings would have been, of course, blood-soaked. His body would have been very bloody from all the scourging and the beating and so on. And it makes a point in the liturgical text to say that the wrappings were left there, and as though he shed them and left them on purpose. And they're, they're left there very purposefully, even the way they're folded. Because what Christ is doing is he's symbolically shedding that instrument that would have been like, in a sense, a sponge that would have soaked up not just his blood, but everything that caused that blood to happen, the sum total of evil, of sin, it's as if he's shedding that for humanity as he rises up. And as he rises up, we have to take note of the icon of the resurrection, which really is called, well, actually has a couple of meanings. Some call it the descent into hell or the harrowing of hell. Other times it can be called the ascending of Christ with Adam and Eve, the ascending from Hades. 
So there is an action here, both of a descending and an ascending. And what's interesting is that in that moment, and this is commemorated on Great and Holy Saturday, that's a very big liturgical moment in the Byzantine church, because we don't just jump from Christ on the cross, then to the resurrection. We have a tendency to do that, but we're jumping over a very significant moment. It's the connecting link between his death and his resurrection. In other words, the two were kind of a means towards this middle section, this descent into hell, because that's where he breaks the bonds of hell. He takes on death at the cross, but then he descends into Hades, into that realm of the devil where people were held back. They could not go to heaven. Even the righteous people, they weren't suffering as though they were condemned to hell. They were just held back. We, we say that the devil held them captive. That's why we say Christ, when he rose from dead, he released the captives. So there's a sense of being held back, of being held captive. In fact, in the icon, we see Christ's feet trampling down, and we say it in the liturgical verses, that he tramples down death, tramples it down. So he breaks down the barriers, the locks and the chains are being broken. You can see that in the icon, and the walls that are being trampled down by Christ fall, once you know it, in the form of a cross. And in many icons, that's falling upon the devil himself. He's underneath there in the darkness, in the abyss. And Jesus is grabbing the hands of Adam and Eve, but surrounding them is also people from the Old and New Testament, especially David and Solomon, St. John the Baptist and uh, Abel, you know, Cain's brother, Abel. And what this is saying, there's other figures as well, unidentified. What this is saying is that this resurrection of Christ was not just a singular performance in his part. It wasn't like some some kind of magical act where he just rises up and you watch that and all applaud. Oh, wasn't that wonderful? Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, that is wonderful. But in rising from the dead, he takes us with him. Just as in his baptism, our baptism is a sharing in his baptism, so too our resurrection is a sharing in his resurrection. So there's a universal dimension to Christ's own resurrection. He's not just doing this alone. He's raising up others with him. And this is why we say on Resurrection Sunday, we proclaim that Christ has risen from the tomb. He emerges from the tomb like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber and fills the women with joy. When you piece it all together, there is here a great mystical union a marital union between Christ, the bridegroom. In fact, we call him bridegroom. The week before Pascha is called Week of the Bridegroom in the Byzantine Church, the bridegroom comes to rescue and wed his bride. The whole of this event sets the context for the very sanctity of marriage. We're going to talk more about this when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright.
are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $20 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you Loretta Freilich of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal of Chicago and Pentecost Today, and you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Saving Jews from the Holocaust in a wheelchair. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky was born in 1865 in western Ukraine. He was an aristocrat who gave up his wealth to become a monk. He then led the Greco-Catholic Church in Ukraine through two world wars. Exiled to Russia for three years during World War I, Sheptitsky never again enjoyed good health. From 1929 until his death in 1944, he worked from a wheelchair. From that wheelchair, Sheptitsky coordinated efforts to save hundreds of Jews during the Holocaust. Next time, we'll tell you more about the Archbishop, who at the height of the Holocaust wrote, A lack of love is the source of every hardship and misery. Love is the very substance of all of God's revelation. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit sheptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. Welcome back to Light of the East on this glorious season of our Lord's resurrection. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. We're speaking about the spousal dimension of Christ's resurrection, how we see that in the details. As I mentioned, this emphasis on what was virginal in the liturgical text, and what's happening here too is think of Christ as the bridegroom, as we said. He's basically preparing himself like a groom should. In other words, he's preparing himself to be the virgin groom who comes to wed the virgin bride. This is what is said in Ephesians chapter 5 when it talks about Christ who loved the church in a way as to present to himself a spouse that was without stain or wrinkle or anything of that sort, a pure and immaculate bride. And this is what Jesus is doing in the resurrection. He's preparing us, and he's raising us up with him. Now, when he, when he does rise, no one really sees that. Maybe the soldiers saw something, some flash, that, but the scripture basically says that they were like knocked down as if they were asleep, like knocked out. But the first people to know of the resurrection, right from Christ himself and also from the angels who were at the tomb, were, of course, the myrrh-bearing women, the women who went to the tomb and once again, we find the context of this whole spousal relationship, of this whole world of male-female relationships, even in the way that this unfolded. You notice that Jesus reveals his resurrection, the greatest news of all, to the women, not to the men, to the women. 
even when the men first found out, they still did not believe. They even came to the tomb. Remember, John and Peter came running to the tomb, and they still did not believe. They didn't really know what was going on. They were just incredulous. But the women, they very immediately received the news. It's because Jesus knew, because he created womanhood, he created all the world. He knew that womanhood had that gift of receptivity, that natural openness. And just as Eve received a bad message from the serpent in the Garden of Eden, now Christ, the new Adam, would give, instead of the serpent, it would now be the new Adam, it would be Christ and God himself, who would now give the good news, the good message to these women, the first to come to the tomb. And they came, if you notice, they came out of their heart to bring their heart to the body of Christ. They came out of that compassion. And in the liturgical text, it says that, that their tenderness triumphed over manly strength. That, in fact, it says their weakness triumphed over manly strength because tenderness finds favor with God. That's the actual liturgical text in the Byzantine church for the murmuring women. Now, this word weakness should not throw you. It doesn't mean that women are weaker than men. Yeah, they are in some ways, just as men are weaker than women in certain ways. But what it means is that we associate courage and strength with men as they are called to face the exterior world and to man up, you know, be brave, be protectors, defenders, providers. But what the scripture and the liturgy is saying here is that tenderness actually was a greater strength even than manly strength. So women come to, and in compliance with, their created order. They come to bring what women bring to every aspect of life. They bring a heart. They bring relationship. They bring connectedness and integration. Women just do that naturally. To the men, though, God, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, would say to them through the women to take the message to the exterior world, to the harder side of life, to the more dangerous, unpredictable exterior realm of things. This is where men basically function, where they're hardwired to function. Notice it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who went to the exterior sphere, to the civil sphere. They went beyond the upper room. See, the women were told to go back to the upper room, speak to the apostles. They were told to go back to the heart, to the family, to the home, and start there to bring life. The men went beyond that, and they went, yes, bravely and with strength, with a sense of order, of honor, as men are called to do and to be. They went and faced Pilate. They could have endangered themselves. Remember, Peter denied Christ because he was being accused of being one of Christ's followers. Well, these men could have been accused of the same thing. But they boldly, as the liturgical texts say, again, it's always in the details, it says that they boldly went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And then they put it into a new virginal tomb. In one reference in Scripture, it says that it was Joseph's own tomb that he gave up for Christ. Well, you notice what they did. They acted in terms of honor, in terms of the order of things, as men are called to do, just like Adam was called to do, to preserve the order of creation. This is why Christ comes to Adam first when both Eve and Adam fall. Eve was the first to reach for the forbidden fruit. Adam takes it from her, 
but it is to Adam that God comes to ask him, what happened? I was looking for you. Where were you? You were supposed to take care of things, take care of the woman, protect things. And even to this day, maleness is hardwired to function on the external realm of reality, to protect, to devise, to defend the appropriate structures, the order of things. And men, they do desire to do things that have to do with honor, stepping up to a mission that they alone can accomplish. Men have that desire in them, and it goes all the way back to the origins of our creation. So the apostles take the message to the whole world, and we find in this, in both the icon of the harrowing of hell, the resurrection, the descent into Hades, the ascent from Hades, however you want to refer to it, again, it's multi-leveled, each one of those is appropriate, the icon itself, the liturgical text, everything points to this one great action by Christ begun at his incarnation when he first came into the world, united himself with his own creation, as the Byzantine prayers say, especially in the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. He unites himself with that, but not only does that, he goes even further. He gives of himself, of his very body. He takes on all that is sinful redeems us with his very body, and then he raises us up again, as we say in the liturgical text on the resurrection day, Jesus Christ emerges from the tomb like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber and fills the women with joy. And now we come then, of course, to today's gospel, the woman at the well with Jesus Christ. There we have a wonderful relationship going on there, a wonderful kind of a tease or a dialogue going on between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He's kind of teasing out of her the truth. He's kind of playing with her a bit, almost romancing her to a certain extent, kind of throwing her off, staying a step ahead of her like men to do for them. I often, when I counsel marriages and I give advice to the man, I say, you have to kind of stay a step ahead of your woman in a certain way. She enjoys that. She likes that. You become more of a man of mystery. You become more intriguing, more interesting. Throw her off a bit. Make her laugh. Do things spontaneously. And this is what Jesus was doing with the woman at the well until he finally got out of her the truth. And then she realized that this, this guy, this, this stranger here, man, he was, a, he was a step ahead of me. He was many steps ahead of me. And basically, she falls in love with him only in terms of him as being the prophet, God, not in a romantic way, but in a prophetic way, in a mystical way. And she wants to be with him. She leaves her water jar there and then runs off to the town to tell the townspeople. And what did she say? This man told me everything about me. In other words, she said, this man had intimacy with me, relational intimacy, mystical relational intimacy. He got into my soul, into my heart. He knew the real me, he knew my pain, and he drew me out of it. The resurrection experience and all that surrounds it was one great, big, mystical marriage. And in it we find the whole context of what is missing today, the real why behind our being man and woman. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. 
To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Why do we need Catholic Radio? Because not everybody is sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? Catholic Radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question-and-answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Father Wade thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.